Basically, we're saying today, how do you be, how do we become and remain a courageous community in a world like this? And I would go further to say, in a nation like this. Um, last week, we had an unmentionable sonar. It was a difficult one, not great. Um, actually stopped and then, yeah, just did, there was not a lot of hope offered. Politicians were fighting racism rearing its ugly head. It was just not great. Um, and on top of that, we just are every day as South Africans facing the reality of a nation that is dealing with so much. We have um, crumbling health care and corruption and crime and um, there's just so much to kind of wake up to and face every day. How do we remain a people of courage into such a setting? Um, I think for, for a lot of us, we can and often do, um, and have the privilege, many of us, if you want to call it a privilege, to just kind of put our heads down and, and go about it. Um, just get through life, you know, and just keep ourselves safe and, and do what the bare minimum is. But that does not speak to courage at all. That doesn't speak to this kind of head-on approach of going, what is scary, what is terrifying, what needs my engagement, and plowing right in. And I think... Um, that over the years, I've noticed this thing and I've been a part of this thing that I'm about to speak of. It's really quite tragic that for, for most of us who are here, some of us who are just exploring, some of us are going, tell us more about this Jesus because the people who follow Jesus have been quite rotten in my life or whatever the case may be. We recognize there's some people here who are just exploring, some who are completely and utterly sold out following Jesus. But I'm speaking to those of you who have made a conscious decision to invite Jesus in, to actually surrender your life to him, to follow him, that at that moment, when you had an encounter, or when you made that decision, or when something switched in you, we were all filled with this hope, and this joy, and this peace, and this love, and just something which was utterly different. And then the sad part for me is that so often when I look around, I go, Ish, we're not really representing that. We, we just look the same as everybody. We've got this hope inside of us. Um, there's this incredible leadership summit, and like the byline of this GLS leadership summit is the local church is the hope of the world. And if I'm honest, to me, the great tragedy right now is that so often the local church is as gloomy as the rest of the world. We're not actually walking as a people who, who walk in this incredible staggering victory of Jesus and with this hope and this peace and this something other earthly that would make us look different. And how does this happen? I think that we get ourselves so immersed in the culture and the tone and the narrative and all the, the gumph of everything around us that we allow that to shape us rather than this Spirit of God, this one who's come in to give us hope and love and peace and victory. We allow the outside to become bigger than that hope that we found right in the beginning. So we see ourselves, uh, we see Christians then sometimes being less happy, more stressed, less generous, and less kind than those who have not maybe encountered this great hope that we've encountered. Um, I know that uh, what happens also is that when we then decide, a lot of us decide we can't, we can't actually go through with this kind of this life anymore. We're, we're terribly worried about the implications for our family. And I do want to say that our worries and the things that have us freaking out are birthed in such good motives. It's like we, we want the best for our kids' future. We want to know that if we need healthcare, we'll have healthcare. We've worked hard and we want to protect our, our, what we've worked for. And these are, these are motivated in good things. 
But what happens is that then we, we choose to surround ourselves with, we, we make a decision, okay, I'm, go, I'm going to do that, I'm going to immigrate, well, I'm going to do whatever it is in, in order to protect these things. And, and we surround ourselves with people who will support that we're doing the right thing. So years, and, years ago, Shell and I had decided we were just so terrified of living here that we were going to immigrate. And we very quickly started to step away from people who had hope for the country. Um, and we started to surround ourselves with people who would speak to this thing that we needed to hear, because we were trying to build a case. Uh, we would make absolute sure that we watched carte blanche, because um, carte blanche was bound to have us wanting to board the next airplane. In fact, we went, um, you know, back then, I think it was 2008, 2009, you could you know, you could actually pay to have people wait in the queues for you. So you'd go to the passport people, and then they'd go and do all the grotty work in the queues. I'm quite glad they've done away with that. But anyway, these people, we arrived at the passport office place, and, um, and the, the, it was pumping. It was so full, and I was like, so what's going on? And they, they were like, no, no, it's, it's been like this for a while, but we have these surges. We've had three massive surges in the last few years, and two of them were because of a really bad carte blanche episode. We like, they had to turn people away at the door because people had watched carte blanche, and it had painted such a terribly negative picture that they were just like, we can't, we can't go on. I mean, how influential is that? And I'm not knocking carte blanche. I still, you know, I think there's great stuff on it. But I'm just saying... At that point in our lives, we were literally choosing to watch those kind of things to support this narrative that we wanted, that it was beyond uh, being able to move forward in this country. I do, I do want to say that I believe it's, it's understandable to be a little bit scared here now. And I also don't want you to think that today is all about us becoming a bunch of ostriches who walk around with this annoying optimism, like everything's fine and it's all going to be fine and we, we, like we have total blinkers on and we actually become useless to those around us and irritating. So how do we find this balance between realizing and knowing that things are hard, that there are businesses closing down daily, that there are people who have a real threat of not being able to eat next week? How do we navigate the tension between what we're really seeing and also not being defeated by it and not allowing that to turn us into gloom and doom? How do we carry something of the kingdom in a way that won't exhaust us and wear us down? Uh, at that time when we were trying to surround ourselves with people who would uh, support what we wanted to hear. Um, I remember clearly that it was the people in the church at that time who, their voice was just there saying, you're making a mistake, it's wrong, God is still on the throne, he still has plans for us, he still loves his people everywhere in the world, he loves them. And um, I do remember that, that there was that light shining out of the church. And I, I pray that today that this faith community that we would grow in, in what I'm going to speak in today. So how do we become a courageous community that has a fuel that is not of us, that is not going to exhaust us and train us, something that we're not like scraping the barrel to carry on being those shiny, happy, ridiculous people? How do we have an authentic expression? We need a fuel in order to be a courageous community in this country. And today we're going to speak about that fuel, and that fuel we believe is worship. Now, I don't think I've ever prepared for a message and felt like God was shouting about that message as I have for this one today. Um, 
it's been ridiculous. As I, as I just like popped onto Facebook yesterday, I saw something that cursed, cursed wave. You can stab me later. Kirst had been pondering on this very thing this week about worship. And, um, and then later on, Bex posted something on our group about what God had been speaking to her about in worship. And, and then this morning, you know, like I get this ting notification from version, And it's literally one of the scriptures that I'm working off today um, about being people who worship and bring praise and thanksgiving. And I was just like, you know, sometimes God speaks to us in a small, soft whisper. But this is like he's bellowing. He is bellowing about this. And so my faith today is that today we are going to go home as a a people transformed, as a people transformed to be people of worship. And that's not just what we've seen up here today. It's that we will have a heart of worship. So um, to start off with the music side of worship, you know, um, we, I think, and you can all shout to a, a whoop, amen, yippee, whatever you want to, but I think we are absolutely blessed in this place with our worshipers. I think that I come in here on a Sunday and I go like, this is just beautiful. And I want to tell you what I believe it is that makes the worship that we have here incredible. And I know if you're referring back to today, it was obviously difficult <laughs> with no words. But what we have here in the guys who worship in this church, I can tell you utterly completely, is that they get up here and they have an overflow of worship that they do all week. They don't just get up here and go, we've got a song list. These guys worship all week. Um, and they, they just have an, an extra heart of bringing that in song. Now, um, how you know these, these worshipers is that, like, if you're sitting in a group of people and, and there's a problem and people, I don't know how to deal with this, the first thing that the worshipers will do is prescribe worship. They'll do that. And, and when the poop is hitting the fan, they will just put on the worship. Okay, some of us will start to go, let's pray, let's fast, let's call a prayer meeting. But the worshipers will stick on the music and worship. Now, like I said, it's, it's often when the poop hits the fan that you'll see these worshipers come alive. My husband is one of the worship leaders, and he lives with me. So he plays worship a lot, a lot. And I often get into his car, and the worship's playing, and I'm like, don't you like any other music? And then I, I just go, oh, but... Yeah, okay, I get it. He needs this. <laughs> he, he needs more worship than most. Um, when Kimba's dealing with stuff, she takes herself into room and worships. Bex does it. Severin does it. Candy does it. It's, it's their go-to. And, and we, stand, we get to come here on a Sunday and, and have an overflow of that as they worship. I remember one afternoon, I had just had some fairly devastating news, and I Felt a little bit like I was just thinking, and um, we've got this uh, this WhatsApp group with our Exco team. So you know, um, for those who don't know, we have Olive Tree, Florida Road, and Kloof and here, and there's a there's a team that I'm in that oversees all three sites, and um, made up mostly of the other site leaders. And I put a little cry of help on this group, and I was like, help! I don't know what to do. This is happening, and I feel like I'm thinking, and um, our our worship pastor, at that stage, he was a worship pastor over all of the sites. Um, he is very quiet on the group. You know, I think he's, he's young and trendy, and he's quite irritated by us older people with all our WhatsApping. But he was the first one to respond for probably the first time ever. And he just said, Nat, go and play this song loud. And it was called, Tell the Devil No, Not Today. <laughs> and um, not today, it's called. But the, the lyrics go, Tell the Devil No, Not Today. And it just... It really and truly was like the right prescription for that moment where I just went, I'm, I'm just not going to let this thing drown me out. Um, so there is worship. But more than that, we're called to be worshippers. And that is beyond singing a song 
Uh, it's beyond this hour in church. And so let's look at that. I'm just going to read this. The use of the word worship in the Hebrew is the verb shakar. Sounds a bit like something from Ace Ventura, if I remember. Shakar, I think. Which means to bow down, to prostrate oneself, to lie flat on the ground. It means falling on your face, bowing before one. It's humility, an act of showing deep respect. Worship means to show reverence and adoration, respect and a belief in one's worthiness. And you know, if you respect one to the point that you could like lie down flat on your face, to me it also speaks of a life of obedience. Where if this person who you respect enough to fall flat on your face says, do this, you're going to do that. So where I'm starting today is that worship is a heart issue. It's not just the singing of songs and praise. It is a place where we acknowledge God's goodness and his greatness, his size, his sheer size in our reality. That is really what worship is. So I'm going to start with this. Paul is addressing, um, this is in Acts 13, verse 16, for anyone who wants to follow along on their phones, Acts 13, 16. Paul is addressing the people in Pisidian, Antioch, and giving them a short version history lesson. He says this, it says this, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors he made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. Remember, they'd been slaves. And um, with the mighty power, he led them out of the country. He did all those ridiculous things, sent all those plagues, and, and got Pharaoh to let them go. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of the country. And for about 40 years, he endured their conduct. I think sometimes God has to endure my conduct. That kind of jumped out at me because I'm, I'm so kind of cyclical and I can get so stuck in negativity and, you know, those same old cycles that we all get into. You know, it says, for 40 years he endured their conduct in the wilderness and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as the inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people asked for a king. Now, um, interesting, God actually did not want to give them a king, but they begged, and so eventually gave them a king. He gave them Saul, who started out quite well, but got quite rotten in the end. After removing Saul, he made David their king, and God testified concerning him. So this is now Paul speaking to this new church in, um, in Pisidian, Antioch, and talking about David, okay, and saying, this is what God said about David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So there's this, a man after my own heart that he chose to be king, and he will do everything that I want him to do. So the interesting thing about Acts is that if we're reading Acts 13, then you can kind of know that that's about 13 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. So each book of Acts is roughly a year, and we're getting this fantastic highlights reel of all the best stuff that happened. But this is 13 years after he's written, uh, risen, and these guys, Paul and Barnabas, are going all over the place sharing the good news. And what, what this passage shows us is that they knew of David. They knew about him. They knew that he was a man of God's heart and that he followed God's will. And they know that David changed a nation. 
So um, I'm going to share this, and I, I really do wish that Justin had been here to share it. He was able to share this little portion that I'm going to try and do justice to at Florida Road. But Justin is our worship pastor. Um, he's now solely at Florida Road, but he works with us also for Wholehearted. And I met with him a few weeks back to chat about the conference, and he shared this part. And, you know, because he's such a, a deep worshiper, as in the act of worship that we get to see, he, he can't speak about the stuff without it, like, leaking out his eyes. You know, my, my eyes leak over other things. But when Justin shares this, and when he shared it with me, it, it felt like, like the rest of the world just stood still because he gets it so deeply. So um, it's just the way he spoke about it, but we can find, any of us can find this. It's just that, you know, God has different callings on different people, and so different things really connect with us at different levels. So he, he describes how we, we know that David was a shepherd one day. He was a shepherd who worshipped. He had a, a, a habit of worshiping day and night. But this young shepherd boy, and the very next day, he is king of Israel. Okay, this is a broken, messed up nation now because they had actually um, abandoned the Ark of the Covenant, which is something that God had wanted to be a part of the nation. They had just ignored it. Saul had taken this nation into um, economic turmoil. They were worshiping idols left, right, and center. And it's, it's a proper mess. So now there's this young David, and it's like, literally like Donovan, tomorrow you're taking over South Africa. All eyes on Donovan. What is he going to do? What's his strategy going to be? How on earth can this boy who's been looking after sheep come in here and, and do what he needs to do in this nation? Um, and so his first act, his first thing to to try and turn this nation around, okay? Think of our nation that needs turning around. First thing he did was to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. And what he was doing in that moment was saying, God's presence is the most important thing for this nation. And the next thing he did was employ over 4,000 worshipers to assemble around this Ark day and night and day and night. Um, Justin tried to use this as motivation for Roscoe to hire another 4,000 worship leaders, but it didn't go down well. Um, but David hired these worshipers because he wanted to change the nation in the way that he knew best. And so there's these worshipers all the time around there, and they're praying, and they're praising, and they're singing, and they're prophesying. And prophesying really is hearing God for the nation and for the people. And... Um, he, he understood that this ark had the manifest presence of God. It was the presence of God in this ark. And by bringing it back, he was drawing a line in the sand and saying, this nation is going to value God's presence more than anything. And we will worship that presence. And that will be what leads to change. Um, people would gather and add to the number. And they would also praise and pray and give thanks Another thing about um, David is, you know, when you think of people, if we go back to that original Hebrew word of, of worship, it's like a falling on, on, on one's face. That's an incredible act of humility. How often have you guys ever, like, fallen on your face or even bowed? You know, I remember when I was a little girl, sometimes we had to curtsy. I think it was at the end of ballet performances and stuff. But, you know, this whole notion of bowing and curtsying and just... Going down before people is, it's a sign of respect and, um, but this falling on a face speaks of a massive amount of humility. Now, David was humble. And the interesting thing is that David didn't take on the garments of a king. He actually clothed himself as a priest. 
And this would have been scandalous because he wasn't trained to be a priest. <laughs> you know, he hadn't done what needed to be done in order to occupy that position. But what he was saying is, as the people look at me, I want them to see me as one who leads them into closeness and intimacy with God, more than one who's here with authority. In one of the Psalms, um, this is just an interesting side note, when, you, when you're preparing a message, you can go on lots of tangents, and I'm probably worse than most, so, but I just, I just thought it was interesting to note this. In one of the Psalms, David speaks about Melchizedek. Um, he's actually talking about, he's prophesying about Jesus and saying that you will be um, Lord and you'll be a king and a priest in the, in the order that Melchizedek was. Now, Melchizedek was a, a priest and a king in the Old Testament, and, um, and then we know that, so a priest was there to draw people into closeness with God, and a king was there with authority. And so now David is showing the same. He's going, I'm your king, but I'm, I'm more than anything want to be one who leads you into closeness with God. And then, of course, he points to Jesus, who in the most staggering act on the cross did the most radical thing to bring us into closeness with God and was called a king. Um, on his cross, it said, here is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So um, anyway, that's just interesting about David is that he didn't assume the typical position of king. He actually was more concerned that the people would know how to engage and be one with God. <clears throat> you know, so often we look to worldly leaders and powers, and you only need to look at what's going on in the States to see that people are just pinning so much hope on a person. But we don't need necessarily a David to come and save our nation. Yes, a good leader would be incredible. Please, God, could we have a good leader? But each of us has an opportunity to be a David each and every day of our lives. If we carry a heart of worship, we can be the ones who are reminding people about God's greatness, his bigness, his love. Everything that we need in our lives is found in God. David knew how to lead people into the presence of God. So Psalm 100, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And then here's, here's the big thing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise him. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all the generations. I think that's so key also when we're thinking about the concerns we might have for our children. His faithfulness continues through the generations. But the thing here that I'm pointing you to is that he says we enter his gates. We enter into where he is with thanksgiving. One of the greatest things, one of the most important things of being a worshiper is to have a heart of thanksgiving, to have a heart of gratitude, to every day be able to look at the things around you for which we know God has given us and to be thankful. And that is how we take that first step into being close to God. The next, in, in, not into being close to God, he's close to us all the time, into what I mean is into allowing his reality, his goodness to shape us. If we're going and we're finding it hard to be grateful for anything, we're actually in many ways cutting ourselves off and not allowing ourselves to believe in his goodness and his kindness in our lives. And then we enter his course of praise. As we praise him, as we speak of his goodness and who he is, that's where we really get to believe it. You know, if you 
are writing a birthday card for somebody or if you're praising somebody, what you're doing as you're speaking those words over them is you're cementing the fact that you believe it in yourself. You're going, you are this, you are that, you are these things. And you're building that belief in yourself as you speak those things. And that's what's happening when we praise. When we carry worship in our hearts, there is a transformative power in our lives. What we're doing is that we're making his kingdom greater than the kingdom around us. And we're fighting more for oneness with him than oneness with what's going on around us. That's what being a worshiper really is. Now I'm going to move from David, this Old Testament, I think it was about a thousand years before Jesus, and now we go back to Acts, and we're in Acts 4, and we look at how um, this understanding shapes the people in the new church. So this is a newly established church, it's about four years in, I think um, originally they called the church of Acts the way, Um, but anyway, it says here in Acts 4 verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple guard, sorry, what's happened just before this is that uh, Peter and John have really rattled everybody by um, healing a guy who'd been lame for 40 years, and of course it causes big reactions and people, you know, the the religious leaders are not happy with it, so... um, This is now going on from there. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming that Jesus, uh, in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Then we skip forward to Acts 4, 13, and it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and that they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. And then the question here is, have we been with Jesus? Have we been with him more than in an hour in a week or an hour at life group? Are we with him? Are we with them to the point that people will look at us and say, oh, take note, that person's been with Jesus. Because when you're around somebody a lot, you start to resemble them, speak like them, think like them, act like them. And so there's these guys, Peter and John, they're going through so much. They're, you know, doing acts for God and showing the miraculous and being thrown in jail and coming out again and showing remarkable courage in the face of unspeakable opposition, opposition that I don't believe many of us have faced. And, and it says, they looked at them and they said, these are underschooled men. They're ordinary. But they took note that they had been with Jesus. I think this is an invitation to all of us, that people would look at us and the way that we're able to be courageous in this world around us and go, this person has been with somebody. There's something different. There is a hope here that I can't actually understand. When we love and respect somebody very much, hugely, it is, it is a natural thing that we want to be like them, to, to speak like them, to work out what it is that makes them so incredible and do that. And this noting that they had been as Jesus to me also just speaks so much to a life of obedience where you, you're just so in awe of him and the mighty work that he's done that you, you have no way to respond but in obedience to where his spirit is leading you. In Acts 4.23, it says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. Listen to that. They went back to their own people. 
and reported all that the chief priests and the elders have said to them. When they had heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. There's another passage here which I've taken up, but it talks about, they say, why do the nations rage? And they're talking about the turmoil and the political climate and everything that's going wrong. But they're still saying, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and see in them everything in them. So they've gone to jail, they've come out, they're now meeting with their people, and what do they do in this place? They do the same thing that they know David did with all the worshippers at the mountain. They're praising, they're giving thanks, they're praying, they're prophesying, they're speaking what God is saying into their lives and into the nation and to everyone around them. And after going back and being with their people, they would go back out as courageous community, back into the world to do whatever it was God was leading them to do. Acts 4.29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your words with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The beginning of that, that portion says, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants. I think it would be unfair today to, to not speak to the fact that whilst we know that there is great courage required just to, to go out into our nation and to be light carriers in all that's going on around us, we recognize that there are also inner struggles and inner threats going on. We know that people are struggling with anxiety and depression and broken marriages and financial problems and being stuck in patterns of self-destruction. There are these threats. There's this stuff coming against us. And we need courage to overcome. And it is going into those places with our people, going and restoring ourselves back on a Sunday, going into a midweek life group and just allowing the people around us to bring us back to faith when that's really hard. That will help us to be filled up with courage. I felt that it was absolutely important that we close today with hearing something that Jesus said on this matter of worship. So Jesus is now speaking to the woman at the well, and this woman at the well is a broken woman. She um, is at the well in the middle of the day, which speaks to the fact that she was an outcast. She didn't actually even want to come into contact with other people. And there she is at the well, and she's talking to Jesus. She's shocked that he would, would even speak to her, a Samaritan woman. That wasn't done in those days. And she starts asking him about where people should worship now. Where should they worship? Should they worship in this place or in that place? And Jesus answers like this. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must follow in the spirit and in truth. He's speaking to this thing that, yes, we worship together. Yes, we come together and we are strengthened and fueled up in speaking of God's goodness together and in filling that into each other's hearts. But he's also talking about worship being something that we carry with us. It's, it's in us. It's a spirit in us and a truth in us that we carry and we show into this world. It's, it's the reality of going, there is a kingdom with a king who is inside of me that I can bring down to shape this world around me. Um, 
I'm sharing a story about my son, who I didn't expect to be in the service today, but that's okay. It can't be as bad as the time I was sharing on um, sex, and my mother-in-law came into that service as a surprise. So this can't be nearly as bad. But um, years ago, Nick um, was tormented for years. At nighttime, he would wake up in the middle of the night screaming um, with what we believe was something spiritual that was terrifying him. And um, we tried everything under the sun to get to the bottom of what Nick was going through. And uh, we had people come in and pray, and we, we did all sorts of crazy things. But the thing that got it to break, the thing that got it to end, and, and sometimes it would go on for an hour at night, and, and, and Sheldon and I felt absolutely helpless to help this kid. But the thing that broke it was if we could start singing Sheldon and I, a song of worship, he wouldn't be able to speak, this child. He could not speak. He could not do anything. It's like his mouth wasn't working when these things were happening. But if he could start to sing, which he would after a minute or two, immediately the peace would rush in. It was like broken in an instant. And only two or three more times, this terror would come to this child, and he would start to sing, and it would go. And why I'm sharing the story with you is because when we're in the grips of terror, or in the grips of anxiety, or depression, or despair about the state of our nation and everything that needs to be redeemed around us. Whatever the grip is that you're in, it is worship that will pull you out of it. It is being able to believe in that moment of terror that God is who he says he is, and being able to declare it and speak it or sing it, whatever it is to you. But what it does is it silences the voice the, the voices of everything defeated and dark. And it brings God into a situation. And that terror goes fleeing. The darkness goes fleeing. We've been pushing really hard into being a courageous community. And today we're going to end with some communion. But I am absolutely praying that as we close the service and have a moment of a song that you don't even have to um, sing, just to listen to, that we leave this building with hearts of worship, that this is something that we realize that we carry inside of us, this knowledge of this king who came in at some point, or will come in at some point, who has an unimaginable love, who gives us a hope that makes no sense, who gives us peace where there is fear and terror, this king who is victorious, this is the one that we worship, and it is a posture. It is not a thing we do, it is a who we are.